you only listen to one music podcast today, it should probably be the Throwback Podcast with Bob and Dan. That's pretty good. But if you listen to two, okay. if you got some extra time, got that extra hour to spare in your day, we are here for you on the Perfect Playlist Podcast. I am D-Pro. He is JD. JD, how are you, man? I'm doing very, very well. Excited to be back behind the mics with you. And we're doing an episode today that I've wanted to do, I think, since I made our original list of show ideas. I contributed, you contributed. This one was on there, and this is live performances. You and I, JD, if you don't know it already, are huge music junkies, but specifically the, the live music form. You know, going to concerts, I, I kind of think you're crazy if you tell me that you're not into going to concerts. I spoke to somebody the other day who's like in her 50s or 60s and said she'd never been to, she'd been to one concert her whole life. Oh. And it was to see Bruce Springsteen, and he played American Girl. <laughs> this was the feedback <laughs> I got. I got. I got such a kick out of that. Like, I'm not so sure you were at the right concert. I saw Bruce Petty <laughs> perform American Girl. Per- perform free balling. <laughs> free ball. <laughs> but yeah, hu- you know, huge fans of live music. I performed. You have performed live, you know, so we can yeah. speak to that side of it as well. Uh, but before we go any further, I wanted to make a special plug out to our friends at the Perfect Album Side podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially... We kind of started our podcast around the same time. I think we were like marginally <laughs> ahead of them. Yeah, slightly, but, but, but not we, much. But we have the same concept of a podcast. They also cre- uh, curate podcasts in theirs. I, I would say that they're a little bit more mature than we are, <laughs> probably. Slightly. Yeah, we and a lot more southern. Yeah, that that is that is a line of distinction. So there's like I guess like if you're north of the Mississippi River, you're you're fans of our show. If you're south, then you're <laughs> fans of the Perfect Album side. But those guys, those guys are great. Yeah. I appreciate the love that they gave us on their show. I like those guys. I really enjoy them. If if you like us, you'll like the Perfect Album side podcast. They're good fun and great people as well. Appreciate the mention on there and the shout out on their podcast. So JD, let's talk about concerts. You know, I've been to a lot of concerts, right? Yeah, some together too. Maybe not like 300 or 400 Grateful Dead shows like those lunatics. <laughs> However, we have been to a lot of shows, so we ha- we do have a, some of them that stand out. Like when, I, when somebody asks what your favorite concert is, your most memorable, what stands out to you? My most memorable is when I saw Duran Duran reunite in the early 2000s. Being that they were the first album I ever bought, the first band I ever attracted to as a kid in the early 80s, I've never seen the original lineup live. I've never even saw them live, period. So for them to reunite, and then be right in my backyard, Radio City Music Hall. Wow. That was a great experience for me. By that point, I was 30. I didn't realize that was going to happen, and it did. Nonetheless, I was at the show, and I had a fun experience. Let's put it this way. The line for the men's room at a Duran Duran show is insanely short. Yeah, that's the best, <laughs> I was going to say. Insanely short. But I'm leaving the men's room, and then I see someone right in front of me, and I'm like, oh, my God. That is Niall Rogers, the the guitarist from Chic. He's insanely relevant as a producer and a musician. He's on everything. He's everywhere now. But this is right about the same time that the Chappelle show had the Rick James skit out. Yeah. Now, I had a bunch of women kind of blocking the aisle right by my seat, which is very close to Niall's seat as well. And so... One girl turns around and is like, oh, my God, can we get a picture with you? Can we get a picture with you? This and that, this and that. And there's like five girls with Nile Rodgers. And I'm like, I'm a bit of a music buff. And I don't think everyone else is in general, especially at this time. They wouldn't know who Nile Rodgers is. And then he, he goes and leaves. And I said, hey, man, I, I overheard them saying they thought you were Rick James. 
<laughs> what did he say? He goes, eh, I don't give a fuck, man. It's all good. <laughs> I was like, all right, man. Very nice to meet you. He's like, yeah, cool to see you. This guy was very nice guy. Real sweet. And that's cool, man. He's down to earth because a lot of people would take offense to that. Yeah, they would. Like, how dare you not know who I am? Yeah. Uh, how about you, Deepro? A memorable concert experience? A best concert experience? What do you got? Go My ahead. most memorable and it, 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 it's not that big a deal, but for some reason, it sticks out to me. It always goes to the top of my list. It's going to surprise you a little bit. Yeah. And it was with our friend Drew, and him and his sister were going out to this show, and they said, hey, you want to come out? It was at Jones Beach, and it was right on the heels of, like, superstardom. They had just come out the door and announced, like, here we are. We are superstars. Bare naked ladies. Oh. At okay. Jones Beach. It was right on the heels of their stunt album known for their interaction with the audience and they're known for little bits where people throw macaroni and cheese on the stage and they did a bit that felt real at the time where one of the dudes in the band ran off stage in the middle of a song and then all of them ran off stage and then they showed him up on like the big jumbo screen having an argument and then they all ran off and got into like a limo and left like you see you see like a limo and you see it taken off right and then the stage goes black it comes on two seconds later, and it's been like ah. they did did one week. It nice. was like so a little little yeah. little little trickery there, yeah, to let you think that they took off, but they really that was just a pre recorded segment. And they got back on stage. I'll always remember that as something that you don't usually see at concerts, and and it made the whole night for me. I like that a little bit of live theater, right? I have one, one quick bad experience I had at a show. We were twenty heading into New York City to see Faith No More play Roseland. And this is my bandmates at the time, right? And so my college bandmates, Danny Gale, who we featured on another show. So we're driving in, but I decided then to, you know, we met at the college dorm. I decided then to just drink a lot. That was okay. I wasn't, like, aiming to get drunk. I was just kind of drinking to, like, save money. I was like, all right, let me get a good buzz going and this and that. That's, you know, you're getting older. You start, like, being frugal about your drinking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I... At that point, then, it didn't really occur to me because I was a 19-year-old or what have you that, you know, you're driving into the midtown Manhattan on a Friday night. It's going to be really busy. So we hit the Lincoln Tunnel, and then I have to piss like a horse. I've never felt this sensation in my life. It was like, it was like a burning desire to piss. <laughs> Luckily, we had an empty Snapple bottle in the car. So there I had to be, you know, the guy in the back seat putting his hog into a Snapple <laughs> bottle. You know, you don't have to put the whole thing in there, just the tip. <laughs> I filled it up twice for the record. I had to empty it out on the on the Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> oh my god. Entrance. I will say I have been to uh, another thing a couple years down the road. It was a it was a, a wedding party, a uh, bachelor bachelorette night which are horrible. Um <laughs> and so I had a you know, a guy and a girl on on the party bus needing for the same reason to get off and just like piss right on the side of the tunnel. Absolutely gross. Yeah. But at least I didn't have to go that far. I, I could keep it in a Snapple bottle. So yeah. little admission here. <laughs> That's pretty gross. It could have been worse, though. It could have been worse. It could have. But anyway, back to, over to you. So, JD, we are talking about creating these, these moments, you know, moments that have been created for us through live musical performances. Um, you know, when we're going to get into a lot of like acoustic performances today, uh, like there's definitely going to be a theme in a lot of these songs, songs that are kind of stripped down. Um, really where like the art of the lyric really comes out and shines. Mm. So I have brought a guitar today and I want to create a little musical moment for our show. Okay. And it's, it's for me, one of the greatest songs in rock music history. 
but I want you to hear the lyric in its purest form. Wow, this is interesting. So for those of you listening at home, Deep Row is now taking his headphones off, gotten up, and he's about to grab an acoustic guitar, which he brought into my home. This is a treat, folks. I will say, JD, that uh, this song is, is kind of challenging, but I'm doing it just for you. Yeah. I'm fully erect. Let's do this. You hear her voice in my mind. I know her face by heart. Heaven and earth are moving in my soul, whatever that means. I don't know where to start. Tell me, tell me the words to define. The way I feel about someone so fine How do you talk to an angel? Oh shit, I screwed up (laughs) Same chords (laughs) Same chord Oh yeah How do you hold it close to where you are? How do you talk to an angel? It's like trying to catch a falling star. God, that was fucking. I want to make love to you right now, little Jamie Walters. For you know, us. you know, if um, if if you want to come out right now and tell me that was better than the original, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I I will accept the compliment. Wow, Jamie, Wal- you learned Jamie Walters just for me. I, I did the heights. I did. <laughs> well, I also, I mean, I didn't learn it just for you. I also learned it. For me. Yeah, that's true. That because is true. it is one of the greatest songs ever written. Represent. Speaking of which. <laughs> Number 37 on Rolling Stone's greatest five, 500 greatest songs of all time. The live version. Bob Marley and the Wailers. No Woman, No Cry. On the perfect playlist. You thought the vocal was coming in there, didn't you, I JD? Really did. I was it like, oh, I got it this. always feels like it. But nope. Another run through the chords. Really helps the prep for the show, doesn't it? Yeah, sometimes. Nope. Nope, not there either. either. (laughs) We will forever be in search of the first verse of this song. (laughs) And I think it's coming up maybe now? Nope. Still no. Okay. (laughs) This was recorded live in London. 1974. 1974, I thought. I got five. I got four. I don't know. One of us got it. Take it away, Bobby. Did you hear people applaud when he finally started singing? JD? <laughs> like, oh shit! Finally, motherfucker, he decided to sing. He finally decided to find the microphone. Stone bass. This is another great song, JD, that the Fuji's made millions off of. Oh, absolutely. They bastardized it. But, as Wycliffe is apt to do, but yeah, this song originally released in 1974 on the album version uh, of the song. Um, and what we're going to do today is show how some of these songs have appeared on other standard recorded in-studio albums, but the live performance is really what made it come to life. And this first one, this is my selection. Um, I really felt the live version completely stomps out the album version of No Women, No Cry. And, and JD, I think every version, I think there's maybe only one song in the playlist today that doesn't have a recorded version, like in the studio. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to find a common theme 
because when you're playing it live, you just more soul comes out of you, and you, 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 I feel like there's a more tendency to be more strictly, uh, you know, staying straight in this lane, you know, yeah. not, not wanting to go left or to the right, making sure we get it perfect. Yep. But then people are looser and they're feeding off the energy of the crowd and they're doing it live, and that's uh, that's a huge reason why this is um, better than the studio version. Yeah, exactly. And this this popped up on the the live album that this is off of, but it became the new standard. This trumped the studio version so much that the insanely popular Legend Collection, which is one of the use better this one, yeah, better selling albums of all time, exactly use this one. And and it's just the feel here. It's like the audience chatter going on. That organ that you hear there, it's just spot on. It's just the backup singers. It makes you feel a certain way. And even though in some regards this is kind of an overplayed song, you know, if you want to take a holier-than-thou hipster approach to this song, um, it's just really fucking good. It makes you feel. There's a reason that songs get overplayed, right? And, uh, but one question for you, JD. How do you feel about when people say, name your favorite 10 albums and people throw fucking greatest hits albums at you? I don't like that. It not doesn't count. Doesn't, doesn't count. count. Legend doesn't count for me. It's Legend. a greatest hits album. Legend does not count at all. But how do you feel? Uh, and one other thing that impressed me about Bob Marley, the legend, by the way, also shares a birthday with my father. Oh. Um, not that that matters. Another stoner. <laughs> but really, <laughs> Joe Sr. So is that he was able to be a legend by being a guy who, who spoke about slavery, social justice, uh-huh. uh, politics, but also talking about making sweet love to his old lady. <laughs> right? Am I right? You know? Yep. Going to bang you and leave you. It's essentially the song's about. I mean, if you were like with your lady and you were playing like an album, like if you're playing like Legend, you would go back and forth between wanting to make love or wanting to call your city councilman. You know, you would not know right. what to do with yourself. Or your dealer. Exactly. I yeah, wouldn't, I wouldn't. wouldn't know whether fuck or to sm- smoke up or. <laughs> but but this is um, to my point earlier though. So it may be overplayed on just you know the resort band that you're you know you're on vacation. The resort band's playing it or something. Yeah, yeah of you, course. You hear it everywhere. But I don't know. Listening with fresh set of ears like we are today, it does wonders for me. It makes me feel the song takes me to a place. It really sends me. It sense. does. There's a lot. Mecha- there's a lot sonically going on in this song that just works together as one unit. Uh, another thing is that um, you know, as, as, you know, Marley is widely believed to have written the song. Uh, you know, lyrics are highly personalized to him and everything like that. But he actually gave a songwriting credit to Vincent Ford, a friend of Marley's who ran a soup kitchen in Trenchtown, uh, the ghetto of uh, Kingston, Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And the royalty payments are received by Ford, and I'm sure his efforts would continue. But there was also some rapper that did that. I forget. Some hip-hop guy put his children as, uh, um, gave them writing credits so that they'd always be getting like an inflow of cash. I love that. Yeah. I, and so I love that. So Marley did that for this guy on this song, which I didn't learn until we started researching this show. Um, but he also did that for some of his other old friends. He gave each of them writing credits along the way. Um, and this guy in particular who gets the writing credit on this song runs a soup kitchen. So yeah. this is someone who is donating his time and quite literally his life to helping others. And good guy Marley comes along here and sets this man up insanely well for the rest of his life. Right. Yeah. And here I am. I just threw like a dollar and 35 cents into a jar in my bedroom thinking yeah. I'm like doing something you for just, my kids. You just played the heights. <laughs> 
I mean, the legends, the heights. Yeah. Rock yeah. and Roll Hall of Famers, the heights. Marley, J.B. Walters. It's close. It's, it's close. close. Neck and neck. But yeah, I mean, everybody and their brother had this album. I had it. I had it on CD. Mm-hmm. I just actually purged my CDs. It was tough, but this is one of the ones I kept. Ah, that's a good move. That's a good move. Um, but yeah, this this tour that this live performance is from, a big breakthrough for Marley and the Wailers. Their previous tour went really bad, according to all reports. Um, outside of Jamaica, they didn't quite yet get him, appreciate his pure reggae. Um, but he, he polished his sound, tightened it up for this tour, and then, you know, got a great response. Glowing reviews led to sold-out shows in the U.S., and by the time this tour hit London for this performance, they were a huge success. I mean, Marley is one of those artists, kind of as we're talking about and dancing around here a little bit, that he has that mass appeal that really transcends race. He popularized reggae, too. Yep. It absolutely transcends race and genres. Um, you can put this on a mix with a couple other things. No one would bat an eyelash. You do that with, like, an Aini Kamozi or <laughs> another reggae artist. Uh, people, I know. People might feel a little weird about that. There are certain songs of his that feel out of place on certain mixes of mine, but... Uh, Waiting in Vain is a song that I pop on a lot of like background, like party mixes. It's like mm-hmm. a chill, chill out song. Yeah. Or yeah. Could You Be Loved is another sure. good party mix song by Marley that fits right in with almost anything. But I have a, I have a musical fun fact, not too well known. Sting admitted he borrowed the chords to this song for the uh, track So Lonely, which really? I can't really hear in my head at the moment. Uh, I have to go back to So Lonely and just try to dissect that. Yeah, it's a completely different rhythm, so it, it would be hard to decipher that. Crazy random music tidbit I found really interesting when researching this. That's So Lonely, by the way, is one of those songs I love to like scream in my car when it's on because it's so up in the rafters and out of my range. <laughs> no one the should be singing that. The whole fucking song is up there. No one should be the singing The whole that. song is up there. Oh, my God. Like, dude, fucking relax, dude. You're lonely. Go, fucking. He's having one of those tantric orgasms. Go to again. a dating app. Yeah. Go to a dating app. Go to Bumble. Thing. No pun intended. It's not lonely for long after that, too. Now. All right, from reggae to rock. I don't know why I put Marley first and Metallica second. Yeah, this is, this is, Metallica is definitely on an island here because there's nothing like a, around this on the playlist that's like it. Not at all. But you know what? We need to pick me up at this time in the evening, JD. And That's true. My goodness, this is the song. This might. This is one of my three or four favorite Metallica songs, "No Leaf Clover," from their 1999 recording. Listen to the symphony, the San Francisco Symphony. They recorded this with beautiful. It is gorgeous. Um, the San Francisco Symphony playing on this with Metallica. Two concerts they played together to make this SNN album, and. Oh, man. I, I don't know. Should I drop the, the fun fact about this song, which is really interesting? Do it. This song written specifically, or, or especially for the S&M concert. There were two songs written for it, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it, it's kind of crazy that this song was an outro, as well as Minus Human, from the load and reload sessions. And they brought it here, made it absolutely come to life. Here's Metallica. Right 
Well, I mean, what a cool concept, JD. Right. You know, to have, I, when I heard this, I'm like, I can't wait to hear it. To have a heavy metal band perform with a symphony. That this is something that cannot have been replicated in a studio. Sure, it could have been done. It would have been fine. But there's something about the theatrics of having like these violins and like these oboes and all these instruments are like around Hetfield, and especially to see it too if you watch the video. And then right here with the megaphone or whatever he's using, yeah, on the mic, it's just such a stark difference from the strings behind him. I wonder how those how those musicians felt about this. Because you know that, like back when, uh, back in the like the day in like the fifties and sixties, where there wasn't music like this, and uh, Paul McCartney and the Beatles called in and had these musicians come in and do like Eleanor, Eleanor Rigby, Rigby, you know, yeah. like the, the mics were like super close to them, like they didn't like that stuff. They were haughty toddy. Right. I wonder how these people. Felt. There was probably a couple of metalheads in there. I think if you're a symphony player from San Francisco, you're probably open to this kind of thing and excited by it. Yeah. That's my instinct. But this song, written by James Hetfield, the singer. Large, Lars Ulrich, the drummer. The theme of the song is describing, you know, coming close to solving a problem, finding a solution, then all you get in life is more problems. The light, you know, you see coming down at the end of the tunnel, the freight train coming your way. So I think it's a pretty cool concept. No Leaf Clover is the name of the song, which I don't think we've mentioned yet. It is a depressing, like, concept yep. and, and title for a yep. song, but it makes, it, it really gets me pumped up. And this, this this guitar solo that's coming up is probably the most exciting thing for me in the song. I love the way that it's put together. This whole section here, we have to listen to it. We sure. have to take a break, JD, <laughs> and listen to Kirk Hammett. Just Kirk Hammett shredding, as he's apt to do. But I love when Metallica plays with melody. So a song like this... A song like The Memory Remains, the one with uh, Marianne Faithful on it, like those are adult Justin's, excuse me, adult JD's. Oh, who's Justin? Favorite, favorite Metallica efforts. I love when they, they stick in the melody and play in that pocket. Yeah. Let me tell you, you know, I'm all about melody. You know, yes. without melody, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm out of it. I have no interest. That's true. So along those lines, though. After this, a couple months after this, because this was being played on the radio, which was great. Uh, a few months after this, they released that shit-ass song, I Disappear, from the Mission Impossible soundtrack. Oh, okay. And so it's like, it's just crap. It's, it's like, in my opinion, this is the last good, you know, universally acceptable Metallica song they released. I honestly feel that way. After this came I Disappear... And it was kind of like the beginning of the end musically for me as a fan, um, and especially in the casual fans' consciousness. Uh, anything from that point forward, it was just, you know, the death magnetic stuff and the sane anger stuff. It just doesn't re really resonate with the casual fan like the Black album did, like the SM album did, and even Injustice for All to a different degree. But like a lot of these bands, as, as, as uh, iconic as they are, a lot of their creativity was front-loaded into the beginning of their career. Yeah. You know, when they were struggling, they were probably doing more drugs, mm -hmm. they were experimenting with things, they were going through, going through like the hardest parts of life. And I think you only have a certain amount of good creativity bank in your life. I mean, yeah, you can do good things later on, but look at Weezer, look at Oasis, like all the great stuff was piled into the front of their careers. And um, metalheads, I always loved metalheads in school, by the way, I just wanted to say that. Just comical bunch of folks. Yeah, they, they did, and not one, Never, none of them thought they were better than you. 
They may think they're they harmless. have. They may think they have better taste in music than you, yeah, but they, they were did. good, honest, soulful people. I agree. I agree. Always got along with the metalheads my whole life. Um, but you know, the metalheads are the ones who were really into like the first album, Kill 'Em All, and then the second album, Ride the Lightning. Uh, you know, because that was that was when they were doing the speed metal and they were hard and heavy. I don't think the orchestra softened them at all. I think rather than dulling the music, the orchestra really built things up like a tidal wave behind them. I think it felt more ferocious with, with the symphony. Yeah. It's it, not like it, they were singing bedtime stories either. No, they came through like crashing with explosive force. Uh, you'll hear it on Enter Sandman, a whole bunch of tracks. I mean, they've got like, a, I don't know, almost 20 tracks on this S&M album. Fantastic effort by them. Moving right along here on the playlist, our third selection, an iconic, one of the best performances. MTV Unplugged, JD. Oh. One of my favorite series in all of music. This is a fantastic live performance, one for the ages, Nirvana, about a girl. Way better than the album. For me, JD, so much better than the album version of the song. Album version yeah. is fine, but it's like it's, it's definitely fine. got this garage element to it and lo-fi and. Yep. Uh, but I love the, the the juxtaposition of Kurt's like strained vocal. Yes. His like pained vocal with like the softness of the rest of the band. Oh yeah. I think that's what was so brilliant about this performance. Yeah. Um, on MTV Unplugged, and I also loved how Kurt gave the middle. But I didn't really care for like his personality rubbed me the wrong way sometimes. Um, especially he comes out and says like this isn't a song off our first album most of you most people don't own it like come yeah. on dude you're at a fucking concert like rev up the crowd a little bit um, but that he refused to roll over and do whatever the record company wanted him to do you know hence why he released Rape Me and everything and how he made the second album just in, uh, not the second, uh, in utero a huge FU to the record company in the world but starting with this and then doing you know where did you sleep last night and then the uh, man who sold the world like nobody thought those were going to be hits no I wouldn't have give me 50 even 100 guesses I wouldn't have guessed either of those two covers would have been well, on like a fire too <laughs> on an unplugged session with Nirvana at all and I love that this opened it up because I mean this was off of the Bleach album their their date 1989 debut album Bleach now it was released as a commercial single this is the single off of the only single they released off of this album by the way officially okay. oh cool uh, it hit number 22 on the U.S. charts in 94, six months after Cobain died. But after seeing this performance and this iconic performance, this song, it made me want to pick up the guitar at age 17. And this was, this was the first song I ever learned on guitar, this song. Really? Two chords on the, on the verse. And I just did it over and over and over. I think it was E minor to G, I think. Did you teach yourself? Yes. Do you want to play it now? I have the I guitar can, over I can, here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want your version of this song, JD. That'd be amazing. But um, you know, it, the fact that he wrote this about his uh, girlfriend at the time that he lived with in 1989. Uh, she took the photo on the album cover of those members of Nirvana, Bleach. Oh, she that did. Cover. She took that. She took that. Uh, album cover photo and you know to your point deep row like the original has this kind of like heavy sense to it but it's got a pop sensibility to it so it translates insanely well to acoustic guitar and a live performance i think 
So it's interesting though. The, the longer you, I always say, like the longer you let songs kind of sit, mm-hmm. um, the longer you can um, and, and let them kind of marinate, the better they can become. That's why I was like, when on a former episode, I talked with Josh Cater, the Smoking Popes, about how over time your songs change because usually when you record them, you just written them six months before, so you didn't think of like, oh, if I change like this vocal line to this, or if I. Uh, you know, if I add a guitar solo here, you don't think of those things because you haven't had time for the songs to sit. When I picked up the guitar, I thought I was hot shit after that point. I was like, I learned like three chords. I was asking friends if I could play at their party and they're like, yeah, sure. Cool. This and that. And I thought like, uh, it was like, I wrote a whole set list and this and that. Was it just like about a girl like seven times? It was basically the whole like unplugged set and this and that. And like, I wouldn't even tune down because I didn't give a shit, (laughs) you know, like they all did. Can't be bothered with that. Can't. So I just played it all in like major keys and chords and stuff. I didn't give a fuck. So really, sorry. Really bright versions of Kurt Cobain songs. That's just it. Yeah. Sorry for taking you down like the musician's lane there. But really, that's my way of saying I didn't play the songs properly. I was just looking to like. But you're a renegade. Get girls' attention. You're a renegade. That's that's what you do. <laughs> that's what you told every girl that came up to you. Like, I do things my way, motherfucker. I admitted it at least. But along those lines, Dave Grohl playing with uh, jazz brushes. I like that. Yeah. On that. Instead of formal wood sticks. This thing where like this like goofy turtleneck too. Yeah, he had a yeah, real black goofy ass turtleneck on and yeah, like his hair tied back in a bun. It was the overbite going before he had money, you know, he was Right. And like a really destitute looking Dave Grohl <laughs> in that video. But Dave had his own live performance D Pro years later. He sure as hell did. And I love stories like this because he had the song Everlong off the album The Color and the Shape. But it hadn't taken off yet, right? And then he appeared for the first time on Howard Stern in 1998. And like most people, you appear on the show and Howard Stern's more famous than you are, right? And he's an icon. He's been an icon for years and years and years. And you show up and, you know, like you almost feel like you want to be interviewing him. So Grohl went on, was very nervous, and but idolized Stern. And Stern was a fan and asked, like, hey, could you can you do a song for me? And I don't think, like, reading about this, like, Grohl, I don't think he even remembers if he was asked to do it or not. But And he usually didn't perform acoustic although he did have an acoustic guitar with him apparently um, because he just wrote on it. But then he was asked to do a song and he did this, which wound up being one of the popularized versions of the song Everlong. Oh, this will be interesting. Yeah, see if I've you never can do, to do this acoustic. All right, well, let's try it's it. First time. JD, I like how there's a desperation in his voice. It's probably like more of nerves than anything else. Yeah. He wasn't used to this type of thing at the time in the 90s. Uh, even though he'd been in a major rock band, you know, behind the drum kit, but he was really starting out, even though it was his second album, um, as a front man. You know, getting all the, the glitz and glamour and the publicity of being the front man, being asked by your idol to do an acoustic song. I was almost nervous doing the heights in front of you before. I, so, I, a lot of pressure there. A lot of pressure there. I totally right? get it, you know. But there's just like, this is this is true to the to the spirit of the vocal of the song in the lyric. It really is, and and I'm I'm watching the video here on my monitor, and I just can't help but laugh because there's a big, I mean, and I mean big Rosie O'Donnell head right behind, right behind Dave Grohl as he's performing. <laughs> it's in every single shot. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so ridiculous. It's, it's her teeth. Like, who are these big chompers back there? 
and he's singing this song about you know that that essentially he wrote after his like divorce or something or, or, or like someone he was dating or I don't I don't really know the whole story but um, but I just love the fact that from this performance like K Rock L A K Rock uh, they picked up this song and started playing it as a single. Um, K Rock New York then followed as they are apt to do at that time from L A. Um, and so here he is talking in the middle of the song. Like he's just working out the song structure with Howard Stern and his acoustic guitar. It's a long section to play acoustically without a full band. Yeah. And Nicky realized that and wanted to notate that. I, I like that, though. But, Shitty, this is one of those songs, and there aren't a lot where there's a popularized like rock version and a popularized like acoustic stripped-down version of the song. Yep. Aside from, of course, the MTV Pl- Unplugged series um, spawned a lot of that. It sure did. Speaking of Layla by Clapton's another one. Completely, mm. pardon me, completely transformed the, set, the song. It, d- it definitely did. At the time, I never even heard the original, you know, classic rock version of the song with Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah. But. Yeah, and he wrote this song within 45 minutes, according to Dave himself. Um, some of the best songs are just spat out there so quickly. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty cool. I, I really do when I hear stories like that. Like I know, like uh, wow, that's great. Patty Smith, who spoiler alert, we will reference later, typically takes days to write songs. You know, to write something in forty five seconds or forty five minutes, excuse me, is definitely an accomplishment. But the Foo Fighters themselves, they played this song live more than any other. Over a thousand times, they've played this song. I bet. Yeah, we saw one of them. Yeah. I mean, we saw the Foo Fighters and uh, it was at City Field. And uh, we were actually walking. I remember we were walking in to the show uh, because the person who got us tickets got, him, got us to was a little late. We were walking yep. in and they were playing Everlong as their opener. And you weren't even rushing to your seat. You're like, I'm, I'm fine. I've seen this before. Yeah, me? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember that. Sorry. Yeah, we're fine. You were, we were walking around that little, like, out, whatever, like that little area you walk around to get to your yeah. seats. Mm-hmm. At a and, stadium. Uh, yeah. You got to, like, go in the outfield, essentially. Yeah. And you, like, had no interest in running. I'm like, I'm jogging, like, lightly to get to the seats. <laughs> and it's like, I've heard this song, but I'm fine. Sorry, D, bro. I didn't mean to uh, be cooler than the band. You were. You made me feel like a loser for running to my. <laughs> see <laughs> last note on this song the pandemic brings out weird things in people last year rick astley did an acoustic version of this by the way get out it's not that bad it's very it's he still a, performs yeah i imagine it's pretty good it's akin to the delivery he was mimicking the delivery there that you heard on the stern show so it's it's not oh, that okay. bad. yeah but rick astley not even like yeah. that nope no, he doesn't no, do the Rick he, Astley thing. He he's like copying girls' tone. So. Sing along with you. Oh my, I'm, I'm Michael gonna... McDonald all of a sudden. <laughs> Keep forgetting. <laughs> Not an ever long. <laughs> That's pretty bad. But, but little note here that nobody's going to care about. Every time I go to spell Everlong, I spell it every long. Ooh. Because I I'm my brain wants to spell every. Yeah, Nobody gives a shit, but it's whatever. Pretty goofy. It is goofy. Goofy, Anthony. All right, next up from 1997's big reunion for Fleetwood Mac titled The Dance. Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac, here's Landslide. I took my love and I took it down. I climbed a mountain and I turned around. And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills. The landslide brought me down Oh, mirror in the sky What is love? 
JD, when she says at the beginning that you kind of talked over, not your fault. Don't give a fuck. When she says, this is for you, daddy. Uh-huh. At, fir- like, at first, like I was really touched by that and almost brought me to tears. But then I imagined that she was saying that to her lover in the front row. This one's for you, daddy. <laughs> yeah, or Lindsey Buckingham, who's next to her. Or that. And now I feel dirty when I or hear Or Mick it. Fleetwood, who's behind her. Any one of them, really. But I'm thinking <laughs> of like this all three. real gross-looking skeevy motherfucker in the front row. She's like, this one's for you, daddy. <laughs> As opposed to her real father, who it's probably a tribute to. But Stevie Nicks is, is, for me, like one of the greatest voices. Not just female voice, one of the greatest voices in rock history. Yeah. It cuts uh, through the music like a damn knife. Yeah, absolutely does. And, and I would say one of the most distinguishable voices. Will you read my notes, J.D.? No, man. That's my next damn note on the page. Yeah. You're taking away my bullets. But she's looked like a fucking feisty cougar at Fire and Oak for the past 30 years. <laughs> and I am, Fire and Oak I am here for it. Fire and Oak, if you're not from like the North Jersey reference, it's just a nice little restaurant, nice establishment in our area where cougars like to frequent on Thursday nights. They really do. It's like once 7.30 p.m. hits, just turn left and turn right. Suddenly you're, you're in like a leopard's den. It is just animal print everywhere. But um, anyway, Fleetwood Mac, though, and why this resonates here, the why I put this on here is because this version, this was after their reunion, right? So they came back together for this. And especially the fact that Nick's lines of, you know, time makes you bolder right here. Children get older. And I'm getting older too. I mean, after the passing of a few decades, it really shifts the song's meaning completely. You know, it's it's she's in suddenly like you can view this through the lens of she's an older woman looking back on her life, which is made all the more poignant in all seriousness by the fact that she's accompanied uh, on acoustic guitar by her former lover, uh, her lost love, you know, Buckingham right there. I know so. you're trying to have a moment here, JD, but yeah. I'm just thinking about the fact that I find Stevie Nicks sexier as I get older. Really? I just, I never thought anything of her growing up. And like when I got into music, I'm like, oh, she's an older lady. And now she's still an older lady. But <laughs> like now I look back at like when Stevie Nicks is in her 20s, 30s, and 40s, I'm like, man, I missed out on all that. We totally <laughs> like, you know, like two ships passing in the night. Fleetwood Max music, though, for me, um, while I enjoy it, I, 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 it always sounds to me like it's made for 87-year-olds. It is. <laughs> like It just feels like old-person music to me. E- even then, when it was popular, I was like, this is not... Uh, who's the demographic here? I don't know. It's, that definitely has its place in time, and it's dated. Uh, a lot of it is. Yeah. Um, Rhiannon is probably my favorite Fleetwood Mac song. It's good. I like Dreams. Dreams um, is great, too. Although I found... When I was putting together, like every year, nobody cares. I was putting together, I, I do a set list of songs on guitar at my vacation. And I was going to play Dreams because my sister loves the song Dreams. And I realized how ridiculously boring that song is to play on acoustic guitar by yourself. And without the harmony on the chorus? Yeah, it's nothing. It's just like, it's just like basically two chords the whole time, which you're good at. You can do the two chord thing because you did it with Nirvana. <laughs> Maybe I can have you accompany me. That's true. I'll take my shirt off and... I won't, I won't down tune though, damn it. But you won't. No, but JD, one last comment on that song. I looked up in the YouTube comments, which we are wanting to do. And uh, one of them was one day you're a child. And then one day the lyrics to landslide make sense. And you're crying in a car wash, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of, it's like very that. true. No, I very like true. That. I like, no, that. but I do. The older I get the the you know, the more these, these lyrics resonate with me and make me feel awful. 
it's a it's a very co- much covered song. So while you know it's not the most popular Fleetwood Mac hit, as we just Smashing Pumpkins did a great version of it that got that was a minor hit. Yeah, I love uh, even more than that. I love the Dixie Chicks version of that. I like that too. Very good. Made even better by those cover versions. So in this next song, ooh baby, for my money, the only popular version in America of this song, it's Maybe I'm Amazed by Wings. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. Or maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you. See, when you listen to the, this just goes to show what we were talking about before, how the live version just trumps the hell out of the studio version. When yeah. you listen to the studio version, like, you can tell, like, Paul was too big for the studio. Like, his voice and, like, his voice clashed with the instrumentation. Yep. And when they did it live, everything came up to meet Paul. Yeah, and he never released the studio version as a single, but he released this live one. He knew. He knew, man. As, you know, like... This is going to be the hit. There's magic that happens on a stage that does not happen in the studio. This is like the perfect quintessential example of that. And this is off of Paul McCartney's first solo album. And unlike George Harrison, who had three discs worth of great songs to put out when the Beatles broke up, because they were mostly rejected by John, Paul, Paul and Paul. John, probably mostly John, but Paul had little in the way of leftovers to work with here. I mean, he had to go out and work up this album. Uh, according to Lore, he recorded this album, worked it up in his kitchen, played all the instruments himself. And the only other performer on the actual album that this song is from was his wife, Linda, who did the uh, backing vocals on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, coincidentally, the, the, the woman who this song is written for about how she had gotten him through a difficult time in his life in the late 60s. Yep. Yeah, and so this was written in 1969, just after the Beatles broke up. And I I think the... Not exactly a mind-blowing interpretation here, but I do think the the line that's, maybe I'm a lonely man who's in the middle of something he really doesn't understand, most likely refers to that Beatles breakup and how she kind of like helped him and saved him. And why he was just amazed by this person in his life and this love in his life um, through that very unique time. Because who can relate to that? I know, man. And, like, at what point in the relationship, do you know at what point in the relationship he wrote this song for her? Because we all have a peak. We all have a peak when we're, like, totally in in admiration. Uh, It's rare that, like, you're with somebody 10, 15 years, like, now I'm going to write a song about you. About how wonderful life is. Usually it's like right after the first sexual encounter. Yeah. It's like within the first week of penetration, right? So that's probably when he was probably still, you know, still had to clean himself up when he was writing the song. <laughs> that's what I think. And, uh, you know, I don't blame him for that. I'd write this song too. So to deep, well, I love this solo, by the way. It's oh, great. It's played a couple of so- times in the song. Yeah. I, I do love that solo, um, the guitar solo. Yeah, right here. This is the one I'm referring to. This is a fantastic guitar solo for the record. Um, 
But this concert version releases a single in 77 to promote the Wings Over America live album. Um, number 10 hit in April of 97 for Paul McCartney and the Wings. April of 97? Uh, I'm sorry, 77, excuse me. It could have, you know what? The Beatles are so big, it could have been 97 too. We <laughs> no, don't even know. Let's throw it in there. They could have shot it again. We're going back in time, why but we're I, going forward. Why am I doing an old lady voice? <laughs> I don't know why. We know who you're doing. I know, right, I know. So, um, but fun fact, this is almost my wedding song. I know, why was it? What, did, did anything? I know, I know also there was another Beatles song, right? Another Beatles Yes, uh, this, this was almost my wedding song uh, until it wasn't. And that was because um, my mother and I danced to In My Life as our okay. song together. So it was uh, too, mi- too much Beatles stuff for A you? little bit too much Paul McCartney, I think. In you know, back-to-back Beatles, then you're kind of like meshing the two together. Yeah, yeah, so I guess so. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. But almost my wedding song because I, 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 I enjoy this song and its message so much. So, but it's really from you is, to her. Too, this is your selection, though. This is it is not it mine. is my it is my selection. Yeah, I wanted to hear a Paul McCartney song in your presence without you yapping like a badger in the background, <laughs> <laughs> like you did when we saw him in 2011, and as has been documented on this podcast. That's true. Hot take. I wasn't that drunk, but I, feel, I was just having fun. <laughs> you weren't drunk at all. Hot oh. take, sizzling hot take. But yeah, as you were saying, man, Paul, I mean, he used up the 99% of his good stuff in the Beatles. <laughs> he doesn't have a ton of, for my money, he doesn't have a ton of great wing stuff or solo stuff. Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. I, I think he just used all of it during those those years. So his, his earlier Wings albums, like the like the first one in particular, not too strong. But We've got a lot of ballads on here, don't we, Deep Bro? We do. But now I'm ready to party. Yeah, let's rock out with our cock out. With Kiss and Paul Stanley's <laughs> monologue to open this one. Listen, I want to tell y'all, I want to tell you, you've been a dynamite audience, and you deserve to give yourselves a round of applause. Let's go. <laughs> I was, I was aching myself a round of applause. I hated that. All right, you've been dynamite. Oh hey. Oh, hey. All right, y'all know this one. Oh, man, this live album from Alive, rock and roll all night, party every day. This song, man, this album, rather, definitely a landmark for live albums. Um, When this came out, this really influenced a lot of people. Uh, I know Kim Thale, Soundgarden guitarist, said it was the first album he ever bought. And he wasn't alone because, you know, to quote him, he says, you can hear their influence all over metal and punk. Uh, I know Tom Morello says, if not for Kiss, like, he wouldn't even have picked up a guitar. You know? Wow. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Same thing it's, for it's, Slash. Slash, same boat. Yeah. You know, it, but it's, it's easy to compartmentalize Kiss as, like, this kind of cartoon act, right? Very easy because they kind of are as well. Yeah, they're both of those things. So, yeah, both things can be true. They can be, like this phenomenal live performing act but at the same time like a complete goofy gimmicky silly musical entity at the same time to your point deep bro yeah but what is it that paul stanley said about how they like what what made them to decide to get the face paint on i'm not exactly sure it was um, like they wanted to be like the, 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 the like 
something that the audience cannot take their eyes off of. I know something visual, like they wanted to make sure that they stood out. I, I, I believe that's accurate. I do know that Gene Simmons, because I read his autobiography, I find him and Paul uniquely fascinating in their, their takes on life and the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they're just interesting guys. Uh, but the, he Kabuki theater in Japan was something that influenced them. So, you know, the white face with the black kind of accent on the makeup. It's intriguing, yeah. Uh, was something that they borrowed and wanted to bring to rock because, let's face it, their music and their songs were just not that great. But the energy that they bring to their live performance, you hear. And you hear on this live performance right here, you know, burst of cheers, and it doesn't let up throughout this song. The band definitely feeds off that energy every time they're out there. Every time, yeah. I mean, this is, again, a, another great example of... I, I, I kind of put this in the same category as Let Me Clear My Throat, uh -huh. the DJ Cool song, because you don't get that same energy in a studio. You can't replicate that. Unless you, right. you could you'd bring like 50 or 60 of your closest friends in the studio, having them hooting and hollering in the background, but you still wouldn't capture the same atmosphere of being like, you know, 20, 30,000 people in an audience all shouting along with the lyrics. And one of my worst concert experiences happened at a KISS show, but also one of my best at this very same night. So a buddy of mine produced gold records for a band. So he helped design them. So as part of that perk, he also had backstage access and got to meet bands. So suddenly we get a text message in like 2009 or so. Oh, guys, Kiss is ready for their backstage. Come on in. This and that. So we're like, we're in the parking lot tailgating. And we're like, okay, let's go. Meanwhile, it's 100 degrees out. August day, we're tailgating on the blacktop, which means, you know, from the blacktop, you're talking like 120 degrees or something. Damn. We're packing up the beers and we're putting them into a cooler. My buddy hands me one that he had on the ground. So you're talking a nuclear hot glass beer hands it to me instinctively i'm doing the shuffle one hand to the other into the ice i put it into the ice and it explodes like a grenade it rips open my middle finger and i'm bleeding so long story short we could not meet kiss i had to go to the er i go to the er completely missed the opening act the P the arena security then drives me back from the ER to the concert, which I thought was a very nice that gesture. Very nice, yeah. They asked me like 300 times if I was inebriated because I think they're used to alcohol poisoning at this facility. Yeah. And so they stitched me up, brought me back. The kids thought that were driving me thought I was like a, a record executive or something. So they brought me. I'm sure you looked like one of your fucking Kobe Bryant jersey or whatever you were. I don't know what my friend said to these guys, but they, they exactly. I had like a sleeveless tee on. Um, they brought me backstage. And so then all of a sudden I see the opening act, some 41 walk right by me. I'm like, Hey guys, good, good set. I, good I don't know. Set. Meanwhile, my fingers <laughs> taped up. He's been at the hospital for the past hour and a half. Good set. Yeah, yeah. sure. I'm like, what the fuck? And so some 41, I'm face to face with them. And then all of a sudden they bring me out by the sound engineer, which is, as you know, the best seat in the house at a live event, because that's where all the mixing happens. You have to have clear sound to do that in that location. Yep. So all of a sudden I look to my right and right next to me is Lady Gaga, <laughs> who was starting. I think it might have been her monster tour, or one of the big, big tours. She was scouting 
Kiss, invited by Kiss to see how they do their live show, which again is a really a study in how to do a live event. Yeah. They are they are one of the elite in that regard. So I looked and there she is, sunglasses on, and I literally, you know, from me to you, like waved to Lady Gaga, like, Hey, how are you? Like, how you doing? And she did did like a nice, nice little like cutesy smile to me. It, it really, really left an impression. Yeah. You don't forget that smile. You don't. And so I was like, all right, okay, good, good. This net, the security guard caught on real quick in that moment. <laughs> and he took me, he's like, here, where's your like blah pass? And I'm like, eh, I don't have that. <laughs> and then I went right to section 201, row Z. <laughs> That's amazing. You should have brought out your guitar and played about a girl. <laughs> it would have kept you there. They would have kept you there in those exclusive seats next That's to right. Lady Gaga. Two chord cunt. <laughs> Thanks for indulging that story, Deep Bro. No, you have better concert stories than I do. You have better stories in general than I do. No, I wouldn't say that. I I, I, I just, uh, I'm an idiot and so are my friends. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start from a pretty dumb episode. We're going back to Unplugged for this next one. This is 10,000 Maniacs, Natalie Merchant, and Because the Night. Take me now, baby, Pull me close and try and understand Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe Love is a banquet on which we feed All right. I just love, you know what? This is one of those songs, you could appreciate this, J.D., especially as being a DJ back in the 90s, that I heard every 10 minutes on yeah. the radio. It got overplayed, and it was like mid-90s or whatever. Yep. Heard it all the time, so I couldn't appreciate it anymore. Now I'll give it some distance, because I never hear it. Like, it just went off, you know, my radar completely. That's a great point. It's definitely off the grid of um, 90 songs that are... Seen as like kitschy, campy, replayed, etc. Yeah, if you play a '90s playlist, you're hearing like you know Jeremy, you're hearing uh, Smash Mouth, sure. stuff like that. You know, so Even you're not, ironically you're hearing certain yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Like, Smash Mouth, like you said, Smash Mouth. Yeah, but you're not, but not hearing this. you're not hearing this. No. So I can love it again, and I know I'm gonna sound like a creep, right? I talked about Stevie Nicks earlier. Oh, I love where you go. The <laughs> older the older I get, the more I appreciate Natalie Merchant, man. I, I really like her. I, what, what is it? Her, her, her like completely nondescript face? Or? Yes. I think that's what it is. <laughs> because at the time, I was like, for the past 20 years, since I, 25 years since I've been aware of who she is, I'm like, she's nothing special. Then like, it's one of those, it's, you know that meme of the guy walking with his girlfriend and then he looks over at the yep. other, like, that's finally Natalie Merchant to me. And who are you walking with? Sarah McLaughlin in this in this meme? Like who who's, who's I'm walking right? with that girl from She's All That, Rachel <laughs> Lee Cook. I'm walking with her. Like and I didn't realize back at like, how how um, appealing I find Natalie Merchant now as I'm getting older. Now I'm finally in the demographic that 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 appreciates her. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I didn't care, but now I'm in my 40s and uh, I'm kind of about it. But this bridge is amazing, by the way. One of the best bridges, I will say, I think, in modern music. 
uh, it just owns. You just feel that bridge coming, and it swells. It is. It, swe- it swells great. Um, the song is constructed so nicely. For my money, the best version of the song that exists. I agree with that, Deepro. This this stole the original. This one trumps the original tenfold. But it's like like anything else. Like if you put together a recipe, like you know sp- uh, spaghetti bolognese, whatever whatever it is. And then the next person can look at that and then make it even better because they have the framework for it. And the same thing with this. You know, Patti Smith did it first. You know, Bruce Springsteen did yep, it. Together. Yep. And now, uh, you know, she did it. And I, th- I think this is... And also, sonically, it just sounds gorgeous. It does. It really does. And and uh, the strings help. The piano helps. It all it all just works and adds to the power. I mean, this is Patti Smith's only recognizable song uh, in pop culture. They don't know the rest of her play, you know, her catalog Yep, at all. And that's okay. This um, is the only song that's really stuck around. And only stuck around because of the Natalie Merchant. Probably. Because of this version. Because of this version, yeah. I agree. I agree. Our buddy Bruce Springsteen plays this live. Uh, but Does he, he still do it live? He has his own lyrics to it because he co-wrote it originally. It was originally written by Bruce. Then Patti Smith was brought in to kind of finesse it and, and really bring it to life and... and write a part of it um but she ended up writing the verses so bruce has like his version patty smith has her version it's so pretentious and douchey that's interesting it is douchey but it's still very interesting but when patty smith was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame bruce sang her version of it so thank you bruce oh thanks for throwing us a bone i mean yeah i saw was it the 25th anniversary um i saw i remember some performance where bruce and her did it together i'm johnny cash Johnny F and Cash, baby. 1968, Folsom Prison Bruise. I hear the train coming. It's rolling around a bend. Are you really? You want to say Bruce? I'm pretty sure you said Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I was thinking of Bruce. (laughs) Maybe you want a beer. I don't know. You thirsty? Not quite there yet. (laughs) This is maybe the most unique live performance of all time. This really is. That's why it worked. Nobody did it before. This really is. This is really cool. Johnny Cash recording this in the Folsom Prison, California pen- penitentiary. Excuse me. Uh, but he, he first recorded this song in 1955. He didn't actually step into the prison and record this until 1968. Yeah, yeah. Like he, because over time he got a lot of letters from inmates that said that his music, because he had done some time in jail, right? Like his yeah. music had spoken to them. And this featured in the bio. By the way, I really enjoyed the biopic "Walk the Line." Joaquin Phoenix, Reese Witherspoon, really dug that. Um, it really goes into show like what an asshole he was like early in his, his career too. Yep, screwed over his whole family, everything. Yeah, I mean this this performance cemented him as an outlaw. Um, he, he never really had a lengthy sentence. Uh, he was in and out of jail with drug offenses at the, as the uh, you know the movie depicted. But uh, this really gave him that street cred. It did, yeah. It really did. It did. I mean, like, by the time this just came out, and also this is in the biopic, like, his star had faded when he yeah. decided to go into Folsom Prism and record this. Yep. And he had done either before or after, I forget when, forgive me, he had done some other performances, I believe, in prisons. Okay. Um, yeah, I know but- he was big on um, prison reform. I know that. Uh, so I know he was going around the country really trying to bring awareness to, like, why people were being jailed and how and how long and... So yeah, to your point, uh, I think that was that was a big like thing he was stumping for. 
But he, I mean, he did something interesting in that he found like this niche. I mean, our, see, everybody around the world knew who he was, but he focused on this one group of people that he felt like were forgotten. You know, like everybody's pushing these people aside. Yes, they're doing terrible things, but you know, like, um, and there was something about Christianity in there too. I know I don't want to get too too like too much okay. about religion here, but that um, you know, like. Christians wouldn't want you to be performing in front of all these criminals. And then he looked at them and said, well, then they're not Christians then. Because that's the whole idea is to lift these people up. And this happened recently with uh, Henry Ruggs, the Las Vegas Raider, you know, killed this girl in a car accident. And his quarterback, Derek Carr, said, I'm here to love him. He needs to be loved. No matter how terrible a thing he did, he needs to be loved. So I think it's the same kind of concept with what Johnny Cash was doing. Like, people need to be lifted up. Akin to that was what the cramps did. You know what the cramps did, right? Oh my god! They play at an insane asylum with I, like oh, I own the DVD. Do you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> with like two hundred of you know the residents and like yeah. some handful of fans, I saw like the really really grainy footage of this on YouTube, and it's it's pretty rough. So let's go to back to Johnny Cash for a second before we jump to the cramps. What they did in Folsom Prison was that they had to pipe in in post production some of those cheers, like when he said, um, "I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die." Some of the inmates were afraid to cheer at that line because they didn't want to seem disorderly. Seem guilty, too. Or or maybe that. (laughs) To, you know, those people who were incarcerating them. On the flip side of that, the cramps went to an insane asylum and um, with cameras in tow did not have the orderlies uh, restrain any of the um, people who were there for treatment, psychological treatment. So you're seeing like raw, unabashed uh, psychotherapy patients reacting to the cramps doing their rockabilly, psychobilly set, which is crazy to see if you watch that on YouTube. It's really nuts. But I I think ultimately they're doing something good for these guys because who else is coming performing for them, right? Yeah. But it might have have like worked them up into a frenzy. I don't know. Well, that's the lens I viewed it through uh, because it's honestly, in my opinion, it's a piece of rock history because you will never, ever see anything like that again. Again, just knowing social mores and what we know about mental health these days, yeah, yeah. you'll never see anything like that in your life again. No. So, yeah, you're right. cramps. You're right. Anyway. All right, let's bring this puppy home. And to do that, a nice song to close this out. Here's Joe Cocker. From Woodstock. 69. <laughs> Getting hot. What would you do if I said Right, we got seven minutes left on this track. Let's just talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you're talking, J.D., about soulful performances where, you know, uh, performances where the artist, like, put his heart and fucking whole soul into the thing. Yeah. This should be on your list, man, because, and this could have been on our covers list. This is great. It really is. I mean, and furthermore, so this is a Beatles song with a little help from my friends. Uh, for you music nerds, there's a time signature difference here. The Beatles was like a 4-4, so I think 1, 2, 3, 4, right? This is uh, more like a waltz. This is done in like 3-4 timing. And the Beatles loved the fact and were impressed by the fact that Cocker reworked this. They sent him a telegram and placed an ad in music papers praising it. In fact, when Cocker died in 2014, uh, McCartney issued a statement saying, that his version, version, excuse me, was mind-blowing. Totally turned the song, to your point, Deep Row, into a soul anthem. And that McCartney was forever grateful for having heard this interpretation of the song. 
it, it just goes to show what we were saying before about how you let the song hang out around enough and then somebody's going to just hear it and be like, what if you turn this knob this way and, yeah. and do this this way? And it's going to completely change the way. Like, I remember I heard this is the first version of the song I heard because it was the theme song for the Wonder Years, right? <laughs> that's 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 the only way I knew about this song. You know, when you're younger, you don't hear with a little help from my friends with Ringo Starr singing that's true. on the radio as a kid. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I heard that and I'm like, it, it's you. Know, I, I think I, I literally laughed out loud. Not that it was bad, but it was so silly compared to this version of the song. <laughs> and speaking of silly, we've talked on on a few episodes back, many many episodes back. I think even our first, how Sesame Street does parodies. Yeah. And so I remember watching with my kid. They parodied this version of this song. They called it with a little Yelp from my friends, performed <laughs> by Mo Cocker, a cocker spaniel. <laughs> What does he talk about restaurants? He was yelping for help when he couldn't oh. find his bone. <laughs> I, I'd love to be in a room with the with the creative minds of Sesame Street. It's pretty cool, right? It's pretty cool. It's really clever. But you, do you ever go to uh, Woodstock itself? Do you ever go to Woodstock, New York? From here, it's not that far. It's only like 45 minutes away from us, where we live. But what would I do there? Well, that's the thing. It doesn't lean into the fact that Woodstock was there as much as you think it would. Um, yeah, there's the Woodstock Museum, and uh, yeah, you know they do. What do they have? Porta potties in there? Delphins what do they, <laughs> what do they have in the Woodstock Museum? Some old blunts, the brown acid. <laughs> but it's not bad. It's like really artsy. It's good food. I, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Went there with my wife a couple years back. Just curious if you ever went. But so your your but your parents were both at Woodstock, weren't they? They were separately. Separately, yes, separately. Uh, before they met one another. Uh, my mom and my dad, respectively, went to Woodstock. Uh, my dad, a huge, huge Hendrix fan. So that was like his draw. Uh, my mom, I think, was just going to go. But, um, I mean, what are their memories from it? What do they tell you about it? It's tough to pull anything from them in terms of Woodstock. My dad is very, very much a, a kumbaya kind of person. So his, his memories were really... Uh, around the haziness of everyone getting together and loving one another. So I didn't get too much specific from him. I'll pick my mom's brain because she's a, a lot more uh, literal. So yeah, I'll, see, I'll see what's doing something. there and uh, analytical. So I'll see what's doing there. You've had a lot of time to talk to them about this, J.D., and that's all you can give me. I know. I know. My dad so, says he was happy to see everybody smiling together, <laughs> and my mom, she hasn't really said much about the fucking biggest musical event of, of like, any lifetime. In music history, is it? She said it was okay. She said it was all right. But listen, Joe, Joe Cocker is, like, having a full-on aneurysm at this point. Yeah, he's full-on <laughs> just shitting himself. <laughs> he's like, I'm pretty sure he was, like, electrocuted at some point during this performance. <laughs> He's off his rocker. <laughs> he's like, ooh, he's like, he's way out there. But the uh, the backing band, I mean, he's got a lot of notable soul singers behind him on this one, at, and Jimmy Page on guitar for this one. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know this, that this performance. Yeah, and the uh, the drummer from Procol Harum, um, Wetter Shade of Pale. Yeah, yeah, on, on drums on this one. So that's really cool. Notable. Superstars, I would say, on on backing. You know him up. who didn't tell you that? Your parents. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> I probably surprised my parents with this <laughs> trivia. Come give on, me guys. a give me something. 
I mean, it's like that's like being witness to the birth of Christ. Like they can't tell us anything yeah. about the show. They were there, but you know, they didn't know. Was it frankincense or? I had a good burger. Yeah. That's all I remember. <laughs> a good burger. I made a friend. At the manger. I made a friend, Billy. I don't remember him anymore. He died, I think. Mary got laid, but she didn't really get laid. So <laughs> yeah, just saying. It was over the clothes. A little weird. <laughs> a little bit of seep. <laughs> but yeah, during this cocker, I mean, the coxman. He was only 25 years old, and he sounds like he's 85 years old. He looked like he was in his 40s, too. Oh my like, he God. never looked young. I mean, it just this cemented his reputation as a live performer. 25 years old, drenched in sweat, wearing tie-dye. Uh, this is uh, one of the you know finest performances of all time, finishing out our perfect playlist of live performances. And I'll listen to this end, man. I mean, if you're tripping at the end of this thing, like you yeah. had quite a time you're just at this show. Balls out. At this point, how are you dancing to this? You're just like, you're just maniacally like, like you like can't, you can't being dance electrocuted. To you just move at your own pace. I guess so. A lot going on here. But, I mean, he leaned the fuck into that performance. Twenty-five years old. I mean, that's an old soul. He was always old. Coxman. The Coxman. The Coxman <laughs> himself. So, I mean, I think we can all agree that How Do You Talk to an Angel is probably the highlight. Yeah, probably the best live performance on this list, yes. <laughs> probably going to say Transcends that it was list. the best. really does. You know, we're talking about songs where the live performance was better than the studio performance. And I think all of these songs... We didn't, we we kind of said that without saying it. That I think all of these songs really we feel that way about, right? Yeah, I think that so. The live performances were better. I think so. Hence why they made the list. Yeah, the only I think one up for debate it might be Everlong. Some people prefer the electric version to the acoustic. I do kind of. Actually, you're right. I do. It's close. It, it is depends, close. It depends on the mood, but but the rest of them, the other nine, I prefer the live versions to the studio version. That's why we love concerts so much, and that's why we have big souls and big hearts, JD. And big kicks. Imagine not going to concerts. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Imagine not going to concerts and appreciating this stuff live. Which reminds me, I actually actually was supposed to be at a Nathaniel Ratliff show tonight. Tonight? I chose to be here with you. Get the fuck out of here. I did. No, get out of here. I mean, I show. wasn't supposed to be. I didn't have the tickets. But... <laughs> I considered but he was playing at an arena. <laughs> he was playing, and I thought about going. And then I thought, no, we should record an episode of the Perfect Playlist. Right on. Where so can they find us? They can find us on Twitter at the Perfect PL, or on Instagram at the Perfect Playlist Pod. I appreciate you guys listening tonight, JD. Do you have any parting thoughts for our uh, audience? Here? To answer the question, how do you talk to an angel? I just talked to one for the last hour. Deep bro, thank you for your time today. Touch my heart. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>